Welcome to Purpose 360. I'm Carol Cohn. And I'm Chris Noble. And we're on a journey to explore the brightest and most innovative minds and initiatives in social purpose. Today, companies and brands must stand for something meaningful. They have to have a social purpose and bring that purpose forward to their employees, their customers, and their community. Each episode, we're talking to leaders at Fortune 100 companies, global brands, social enterprise startups, NGOs, and everything in between. We'll be taking a deep dive to learn how they are integrating purpose into their organizations. To benefit both business and society for enduring impact. Join us. Welcome to Purpose 360. I'm Carol Cohn. And I'm Chris Noble. And with us today is Jim King. He's Senior Vice President of Public Affairs and President of the Scotts Miracle Grove Foundation. And he's a good friend. And in transparency, I had the wonderful opportunity to work with Jim a number of years ago um, through the Everglades Foundation and the George Barley Prize. And we're going to get into that in a minute. So um, welcome, Jim. Hello, Carol. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're, we're thrilled to have you. I also have to say that I am a lifelong gardener. And um, my mother and father were both gardeners. And I use the word miracle grow um, in my business life, as well as uh, to help my gardens um, just look exquisite. So um, I love the products. I love the company. And so we're thrilled to have you here. I'd love to start out with a quote from your CSR report. Um, And it goes like this. Gardening is not about immediate success and gratification. It is about patience, commitment, and a belief that your efforts will result in something special. That magic rarely occurs before your eyes but rather over time. And usually when no one is looking, corporate responsibility is not much different. So Jim, can you talk first about your role at Scott's and how you view corporate responsibility? We like to call it social purpose. What do you call it? So let's just get into your role. So so my role here at Scott's Miracle Grow is, is that I lead all of our uh, corporate affairs efforts, our government relations, our environmental outreach, uh, all of our communications functions, including the investor relations function. So it gives me, I, I think, a great uh, view of the organization and a very strategic view of the organization. I'm also fortunate to be part of a very small management team and one of six direct reports to the CEO, which matters to us as it relates to this conversation because I'm fortunate to work with and for a CEO who really cares about this issue, who, who worries about what good companies look like and, and how they should behave and, and is focused on, on transparency and kind of the social contract that we have with consumers. So as a result of that, I think it's given us a lot of latitude over the years from a CSR perspective to, uh, to put programs in place that have elevated uh, our, our profile, that have, I think, rung uh, true with, with our consumers and with some of our other stakeholders, and I think really have helped advance the cause of the organization. So I think the whole idea of CSR or social purpose 
um, as it relates to Scott's Miracle Grow, is is it, it's kind of embedded into our into our DNA, which I think is what makes it effective. And and your your purpose, which I just love, um, is helping people express themselves on their own piece of the earth. And and in so many of your communications, you talk about the soulful nature of gardening. Can can you share about how that has inspired you and directed you to all of your social purpose efforts? Well, you know, it's funny you, you ask, because we were just talking about this issue over the last couple of days in a, in a different context. Our business is a very unique business. Um, we happen to be the largest marketer of lawn and garden consumable products in the world. So fertilizers, plant foods, growing medium, which is a fancy term for dirt, um, and, and pesticides, both insecticides and, and herbicides, a control product. Nobody wakes up on a Saturday morning and says, hey, honey, let's load up the minivan and run to Home Depot or Lowe's or Walmart and buy some more pesticides because we're running low. Uh, that, that's not what this business is all about. People buy our products because they're engaged in something bigger than that. They're, they're, they're working on their lawns they're working on their gardens. And, and those are spaces that are very personal for people. It's either about how they view their home and home value, or it's an expression of their lifestyle or their personality. And, and so, you know, the whole notion of this mission statement that you mentioned, you know, help people express themselves on their own piece of the earth. Again, that was something that came out of Jim's own mouth as we were sitting down about a decade ago and saying, how do we define what the real vision of this company is and what, what we're here to do? And what we're not here to do is help people buy more fertilizer. That's not how people view us. They view us uh, as somebody who enables them to, to do something bigger than that. Um, so I think that's how we view it, if that answers your question. It does. And, um, you know, in our previous conversations, you've talked about going from defense to offense. And it sounds like that there's a connection between crystallizing your purpose statement and then really changing the trajectory of your journey. Can you uh, give us some of insights into that. I'd say the the thing to remember about what we do, because of what I just said, what we make, right? We, we make inputs, fertilizers and plant foods and control products. That's all a very scientific-based foundation for the company, very fact-based. We have the largest team of agronomists in the world who work for us here. Uh, we have R&D field stations across the United States and when we had our European business in, in many locations across Europe and, and Australia as well. So it's a very science-based focus. And, and as a result of that, there's a tendency to, to fall back on the science a little bit and to defend the science at all costs because it's, it's fact-based. And I, and I get that. At the same time, I think what we've learned over time is that when you're talking to gardeners and you're talking to consumers in general, and if you get down a path of having to talk about science and defend the science, you've probably lost the argument because it's gone right over their heads with all due respect to them. They don't want to have a conversation about science. They want to know, can I use this product around my home? Can I use it around my kids? Can I use it around my dog? And is it safe? And it's as simple as that. And, and sometimes I think what we have found ourselves having to do is instead of just digging in our heels and defending the science, looking at whether there aren't other applications 
uh, that we can adjust and, and provide something to consumers that, um, that strikes that balance, that, that, that helps them understand this is an effective product. It can be used safe and effectively. Um, and, and, and so I think that's how it manifests itself in terms of the product lineup. In terms of how we have, I think, taken this further, you know, our, our journey on this, on this topic really goes back probably 20 years, uh, right about the time I, was, I joined the company. And we found ourselves fighting with local communities around the country on the issue of, of algal blooms and phosphorus runoffs. It started in a very small town in Minnesota and became ultimately a national issue. And, and we kept finding ourselves arguing the science, arguing the science, and, and losing all these uh, discussions with people at the legislative level, state and local and, um, level. And, and we were finding our product essentially being legislated out of business. Mm. And, and we finally just said, listen, let, let's sit down with these folks. Let's find a way to, to compromise. And we made some pretty dramatic formulation changes to the business. And as we went through that process, I think what came out the other end is that we, we learned that we are much better off in reaching out to folks in the environmental community, reaching out to NGOs, reaching out to people who we kind of on paper would just violently disagree with and say, where can we strike middle ground and have used that, I think, to our benefit over time um, to take the target off of the some of these issues and actually be able to grow the business as a result of some of the relationships and some of the compromises that we've been willing to make. Do you find, Jim, that that also helps you, that, that mindset, that purpose mindset helps you work internally? You guys have, you know, 45, 4,600 employees across the U.S., across the globe. And how do you, how do you lead, how do you use purpose to lead them? Oh, I think it goes back to, to this issue about the vision and value statement to begin with, you know, um, let's not kid ourselves that, that people buy pesticides and fertilizers because they love pesticides and fertilizers. They, they, they love growing tomatoes and tulips and roses and having lawns that their kids and dogs can play in. Um, and, and we have to remember that at the end of the day, that's what we're here to help consumers do. And our social contract with consumers is providing them products that enable that. And, and I think we've done a good job here of helping our associates understand what our business really is all about at the end of the day. You've done engagement with your, with consumers and communities from your Grow 1000, and I'd love for you to talk about that, all the way to being the presenting sponsor of the George Barley Water Prize. So one is almost expected, you know, helping to create and grow gardens in local communities, and one is attacking this huge problem of algae bloom. And it's very, you know, it's risk. It's not risky, but it's but it's really forward thinking. So, can you talk about both ends of the spectrum and how you continue to engage? The Grow One Thousand initiative is something that we take a lot of pride in. So, let me let me provide a little bit of context to people listening to, to understand what that program is. What we set out to do several years ago was to create a thousand or support a thousand community gardens across the country. And in, in some places, we did just annual grant making, um, had an annual grant making process that people could apply for, for money and, 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 and receive it to help fund their local project, whatever it is. 
but in a lot of other cases, hundreds and hundreds of these gardens were done in partnerships with local municipalities, uh, with partners like the National Gardening Association, like the U.S. Conference Mayors, Keep America Beautiful, in transforming neighborhoods um, in in many of these communities into really nice gardens. And, and the, the purpose of, of that was understanding that, again, public gardens and public green spaces, they're, they're fantastic places for people to, to assemble. And I saw with my own eyes multiple times these projects that we would be undertaking and, and re, essentially giving a facelift to a rundown part of town and turning it into a community garden. And people just coming out of their homes um, spontaneously just to help because it brought people together. And we've been able to, to do that. Um, we, we created the thousandth garden this year, celebrate our 150th anniversary here in Columbus, Ohio, uh, with the creation of the Scotts Miracle Grove Foundation Children's Garden at Franklin Park Conservatory, which we would submit with all due respect to everybody else, is probably the premier children's garden in the world. Um, so it's, it's been a fantastic journey. From, from here, I think we're changing the focus a little bit um, and really trying to pivot the program to focus on getting kids engaged in gardening. So our goal going forward is to connect 10 million kids to the garden over the next five years. And, um, you know, in our minds, you can, there's, there's a lot written and, and said about nature deficit and, and all the issues that kids are facing and every kid in their world, you know, that I ever meet is just focused on their, on their phone constantly and looking at some sort of a digital device. What we're trying to do is create a campaign that tells people, put those down, walk away from the walls, go outside and teach kids how important it is to get their hands in the dirt and be sorry, be part of something that's greater. Um, so it's a great program. We're very proud of it and, um, and see a lot of potential for, for the program going forward. The Barley Water Prize, I think, is at a different level and one that I'm particularly proud of because I think it, it speaks to, to go back to your, your opening and, and the comment in, in our CSR report, uh, corporate responsibility is a long journey. It doesn't happen overnight. At least in my mind, it doesn't. It doesn't happen overnight authentically, at least. And in this case, you know, I mentioned earlier, when I first joined the company, we were fighting all these battles in little communities around the country, around phosphorus runoff into the lakes and streams and the algal blooms that people thought were associated with it. And we believed all along, going back to the fact that this is a science-based organization, that our products were having no impact on, or no measurable impact on this issue at all. The, the important thing to understand is that of all the fertilizer used in the United States, and there's a lot of it, 2% of it is used by homeowners. And, and that 2% is designed in a way that has very minimal control, very minimal impact on, on the environment. It has controlled release elements to it, so it's not very soluble. And the likelihood that phosphorus coming from lawn fertilizer was causing any of these problems, we thought was next to zero. That, that notwithstanding, these communities were seeing important environmental issues that they had to deal with, and they had to do something, and it was an easy target to, to aim at, and, and we got hit as a result of that many, many times. Ultimately, we came to the conclusion inside of the organization to just remove phosphorus from our products altogether. 
um, we went back and re-examined our longstanding uh, beliefs around the science, um, looked at how we might be able to formulate the product differently and not have an adverse impact on consumer experience and concluded that we could do that. So we chose to take phosphorus out in, in 2011 and, and announced that publicly to wide acclaim um, and a lot of uh, positive feedback from uh, legislators and, and uh, local governments and NGOs around the country. At that point, Carol, you know, we could have walked away and said, we've done our share. Thank you. Have a good day. Instead, we actually inserted ourselves even more aggressively into the issue uh, because we began to understand the issue. In making the decision that we did, we, we began to understand the issue more intimately and understood that this really is a global environmental crisis. Whether we thought we were a contributor to it or not was irrelevant. It was, it was a, a, a global crisis, and we wanted to shine a light on the issue and bring it to people's attention and, and help to focus on creating solutions. So we, we did a couple things along the way. We created something that we call the Water Positive Network here, which is a um, partnership with about 15 in water-focused NGOs around the country that we use. And as that program gained more traction, we received a phone call one day from the Everglades Foundation, and that's how we met you, uh, about becoming a partner in our, in our, our effort as well. That led us to the realization that the Barley Water Prize existed. And the moment I heard about the Barley Prize, I said, we, we have to be part of that. And what the Barley Water Prize is, is a $10 million global competition um, to solve this issue of phosphorus and, and algal blooms. And the organization that, that solves that problem you know, wins the prize if they can do it in a scalable, economical way. And we decided to become the presenting sponsor of that. And again, it was one of those things that really surprised people. Why would you insert yourself into this issue? And um, But I think it's, it's actually turned out to be a, a great move on our part. We've gotten a lot of focus on the issue. And I think people in the water community see us as a serious voice in, in, in attacking this, this problem. And, and I think if we had to do it all over again, I'd do it a hundred times out of hundred. I think it was a really smart move on our part. You know, I was there during the conversations. Um, there was a great wisdom and a future focus on your part. Um, I've seen a quote that you've said, you know, that Scott's has found value and vulnerability. So in a way you've walked into the issue, not that you create it, but that you saw it was something bigger, but really important. And I'd love for you to share, either comment on that, but also talk about how you've advanced storytelling and your relationship with the photographer, Andy Mann, uh, because that really has um, moved you forward in terms of uh, photographs, video uh, docu-series. And so you've really added wonderful depth to it. Yeah, let me let me start with the relationship with Andy and and back into the issue of vulnerability because uh, I think it's my own my own bias, but I, I I think it's an important part of being successful in in this space. When we when we decided to become the presenting sponsor of the Barley Water Prize, we knew that even though we're a science based organization, and that was part of the reason that we wanted to to be part of this, that this wasn't 
our kind of science. You know, we, we didn't have the ability to help solve this problem, uh, but we wanted to support those who were trying to solve it. What we did have the ability to do is raise the profile of the issue and use our megaphone, use our brand to help consumers do that. Water quality is one of these issues that's, I think, really interesting because we don't talk about it at the national level. We, we, we talk about global warming, we talk about air quality, we talk about a lot of things at the global level, but, but water quality is one of those things that manifests itself at the local level. It's a very, very local issue. But, but I would submit that when you have 15,000 water bodies affected by algal blooms, it is a national problem. It just happens 15,000 times in all these different communities. And so we, we wanted to start to help people visualize just how big this issue was and how economic or how environmentally damaging it, it could be. And we came up with the idea of working with a renowned photographer on, uh, on this issue to help document it. And, and we chose Andy Mann, who, who does a lot of work for, for National Geographic. He does a lot of work on water issues around the world and has several hundred thousand, like close to a million followers on, on Instagram now. So we had a, a following that we thought we, we could leverage. And the initial idea was to just have Andy uses camera and takes stills and document this. And, and the more we talked through it and, and got to know him, the more we thought we had the ability to do more robust storytelling than that. Um, and to create a series of documentaries um, that were appropriate for consumption on, on social digital media um, that, that Andy shot um, Chesapeake Bay, Long Island, Lake Erie, where I grew up, where this problem is a, a significant issue, uh, again, this summer. And, um, and Andy, we gave him really total uh, editorial license to, to shoot what he wanted to shoot, um, to write the script the way that he wanted to, to, to write the script, and, and to tell the story. The one thing that we ask is that we had the ability to be inserted in, in a couple of um, his uh, pieces in terms of somebody trying to solve the problem, but we never tried to make any of his stories about us. We tried to make it a story about Lake Erie. I grew up on Lake Erie, and so being in that video, I think, um, you know, I spoke about what it was like on, on Lake Erie and what the challenges have been over the years. Jim Haggard, our CEO, grew up and still lives on Long Island Sound. Um, and when Andy did, um, the piece on Long Island, you know, Jim played a very small role in, in that as well, but the, the pieces turned out to be extremely well done. And, uh, we were very targeted in our outreach efforts to, to make sure that people saw them and several million people did. Um, most importantly, people in the environmental and water quality space, uh, were the folks that we were most interested in, in seeing it. Um, and the positive feedback again that we received from this has been really, really great. And, and this all leads to me to this issue of, of vulnerability. Listen, to, we can call it purpose. We can call it whatever we want to call it. I, I call it the corporate, 
golden rule, right? Just be, just be a good company. Be the kind of company you would expect to do business with. Um, and, and sometimes that means being open and transparent in a way that makes you vulnerable. But being vulnerable to me also brings with it a level of authenticity that rings true with a lot of people today. Um, you know, folks listening to this know what the data says. You know, purchase intent is as much driven, if not more driven, by the reputation of the company that you're buying the product from than the quality of the product itself. And that matters. And, and so what concerns me sometimes is seeing companies glom onto something because they feel like they have to glom onto something, <laughs> as opposed to doing it for, for really true, authentic reasons, uh, even if there's risk associated with it. Associating ourselves and our brand, Scott's Miracle Road, the two most important brands in the entire lawn and garden industry worldwide are the name of our company. So there's no, hi- no hiding from this. Um, associating our brands with a major environmental crisis was not something that we took lightly, and it was something that we knew came with risk. Um, but we think it was a risk that was well taken. How much of that was... I mean, obviously, I know you in the way you think. And so the, the fact that you wear many hats at Scott's and you're, you know, you, you directly integrate and talk with and work on strategy with, with Jim, your CEO, as well as your senior colleagues. How much of that was you? How much of that was Jim? Um, how much convincing did you have to do? Because, you know, if he, if he totally supports it, you know, most of your colleagues, your peers in the industry don't have a CEO like that. So, you know, what, what sort of recommendations do you have to them to maybe be persistent and convince the CEO that they need to walk into the issue and be vulnerable? Yeah. When, when we, when we ask people what they want to hear more of, Jim, they, they want to hear more about like that moment of buy-in, whether it's getting the CEO to buy-in or the company to buy-in, or you all make the leap together. Like how, how do you, how do you make that moment happen? I think the the difference here is Jim didn't dictate the answer to the organization. He brought the organization along over time. Again, we had the first – understand also our, our science base goes all the way back to 1946. That's when we opened our first R&D facility uh, and still have more resources dedicated to R&D than anybody else in the lawn and garden industry in the world. And, and so Jim even received a lot of resistance from people on some of the decisions that we were, that we ultimately made. But I think what he, what he did was help everybody understand again, this idea of a social contract to some degree with our consumer. At the, at the end of the day, our consumers want an experience. They want an outcome and they want to be able to get that outcome from somebody that they trust. And they don't want to stand at the shelf and be confused about is this product safe or is that product safe or what did I read about this or that? I think his his preference was to take that issue away from them and make sure that people understood that they could trust and not have to worry about any of the products that they were buying with our brands. Um, The the other benefit that we have that is unique, I I will admit, from from other companies is, you know, we have a 150-year heritage here. Jim is the eighth CEO in the 150-year history of this company. So, So think about that for a second. Um, this is a company that thinks long term, um, and although we recognize that sometimes we make decisions based on short term needs, as any company does, ultimately 
we're thinking about how we're positioning ourselves with the next generation and the next generation of, of gardeners who are going to come into into our space. Um, and and so I think you know we do have a unique situation here that not all companies enjoy, not all people who sit in my chair enjoy. Uh, Jim and I banter a lot back and forth. I'm not going to take credit for for any of this. I think you know there are a lot of ideas that I've brought to the table. Um, and I've shared with him and with our board and with the management team. Um, some I've won, some I've lost. But, but those that I've won, we've won collectively uh, because I think the organization has come to understand that there is a greater benefit here for all of us and for all of the people who use our products long term. How do analysts respond? I mean, obviously, you need to have the financial performance. But when you talk about the ethos, and your values, and I, I have no idea whether you even use the word vulnerability with an analyst because it might make them a little worried. How do they respond to the long-term view of Scotts? They love the long-term view of Scotts. <laughs> I, I think they're, I, I, tell anal- I tell investors all the time, institutional investors, I, I spend a lot of time with them. And I say, you know, I, I think there's really two ways of, of making money in our, our business, um, owning the stock. One is to own it for a very short period of time and, and time the season right, um, or the other one is to own it over multiple years, um, because over multiple—that's how we run the business. We don't—we tend to not run the business ninety days at a time and quarter to quarter, uh, or even year to year. And, and so, investors who have—I listen. There are a number of investors who I have very close relationships with, major institutions that own four, five, six, seven percent of our shares, and they have owned them for. 10, 15, in one case, 20 years. Um, so they've come along for the ride. And, and I think they appreciate some of the, some of the issues that we, we deal with and how we deal with them. I mean, I'll, I'll give one anecdote if I can just get off the topic a little bit. But it, again, it speaks to this issue of vulnerability and transparency and kind of the corporate golden rule. Several years ago, uh, five years ago, I think it was, we introduced a new what we call weed and feed. So it fertilizes your lawn and controls weed. Uh, a new weed and feed product for Southern lawns. This is a product line that we have 80, 80% market share, uh, roughly, uh, in, in the markets where it sells. We didn't have to innovate on that product, <laughs> but we chose to because we thought we could create a better solution. Um, we brought the product to the market, and to our surprise, we started to see major problems with the product. There is a variety of grass called centipede grass um, that is grown in some southern markets, and this product was killing it, just flat out killing it. And once we came to understand the issue, it obviously became a crisis that you would expect something like this to be. We have, since the 1970s, provided people with a no-quibble money-back guarantee. And clearly, you're going to give people their, their money back in this, in this issue. That's not what we did. We took out advertisements in markets where we knew this was a problem and asked homeowners to call us. Jim Hagedorn, our CEO, myself, other members of the executive team went to some of these communities that were most harshly affected. We knocked on people's doors. Said, did you use our product? Yes. Here's my business card. Um, somebody's going to be contacting you. We're going to replace your lawn. Uh, there was a lot of concern because we weren't sure at the time whether our insurance coverage would pay these claims. And the claims came to some $75 million. 
the end of the day. And the, the, the point of view that we took and we explained to Wall Street, we're doing this regardless of whether we trash our year or not, because it's the right thing to do. And we'll get the business back next year. Don't worry. But if the stock tumbles because our earnings go to hell, then that's what's going to happen. But we're going to make this right for, for our consumers. And so that's, that's what we did. And we took, again, we took that risk on ourselves. It turned out that we did have insurance coverage for us. So everything was, was okay financially for the organization. But we did not know that for, for several months. And the interesting thing that happened here is that when we reintroduced the product uh, the following year in the markets that were most harshly hit, our sales actually went up double digits the following year. Uh, again, I think people understood the company that does the right thing. It stands by uh, by their products, and um, I think we want a lot of consumers for life. As a result of that. That's a, that's a great story. It's a great story. Thank, thanks for sharing that. Um, we would be remiss if we didn't ask you to talk about some of your new markets, which is the cannabis market, and that um, there has been obviously it's you know is it the new gold rush being covered all over. We know that you're going into the market in a Scott sort of way. Can you talk a little bit about that? And, and you know, are you using a purpose lens as you approach this market since um, it's still the Wild West, as many report? Well, so what we're in, to be, to be um, put a fine point on it, <clears throat> is that we sell hydroponic products. Um, so hydroponic nutrients. So hydroponic growing is essentially water-based growing. Um, and it's a, it occurs in, indoors where, where most cannabis in the United States is grown. And we saw the opportunity obviously develop as everybody else has seen what's been happening in the cannabis space for years. A number of states, 30 now in terms of medicinal uh, cannabis and nine for recreational or adult use cannabis now allow for the cultivation of the plant in, in their respective states. Somebody's got to sell the inputs. Um, and the devices that people need to grow those plants. And we happen to sell inputs to help people grow plants. And we're agnostic about whether you're growing petunias or pot or potatoes. Uh, it doesn't really matter to us. We help people grow plants. Um, so we've made a series of investments in, in this space. Um, it's been choppy. You know, it, it's been um, a very, very strong growth trajectory for the first handful of years. We've had a very... Um, challenging year this year as, as some of the regulations in certain states, California in particular, um, have, have evolved. And to your point, you know, there has been a bit of a gold rush mentality as a result of this. Everybody and their brother, I think, thought they were going to become marijuana millionaires. And, and as a result of that, there was a lot of overproduction in the marketplace that has really kind of congested the market and, and brought our sales down pretty dramatically this year. That'll work itself out. Um, that's already beginning to happen. Uh, it'll continue to happen, and I think we have you know a long runway ahead of us in, in terms of our ability to to grow. Uh, in terms of how purpose works its way into this, I, I will tell you it's part of the discussion that we've been having. Um, but figuring out exactly how to do that, uh, I think right now the operating community running that business has been drinking from a fire hose. Uh, in good years and in challenging years. Um, and it's some, something that we clearly know we've got to put more focus around and, and do a better job of going forward. But it's on the radar screen for us, for sure. 
Okay, great, great. Thank you. Um, we, we always love to end our conversations with um, five uh, recommendations to your colleagues to um, enhance, elevate their their purpose journey um, closer to the center of their company's strategy and operations. Um, so we love to hear you share what five key things your colleagues need to think about um, when they're doing this important work? Listen, I, I go back to kind of a simple notion of, of having the consumers back. <laughs> you know, again, we're, we're in a unique space where people buy our products, not because they love our products, but because they love what they do with them. Um, and, and we have to remember why they're really engaged um, in, in this and remember what business we're in so i think that that's the first one the second one you know horace hagedorn who is jim's late father was the founder of miracle grow had a, a saying that went something along the lines of you know respect the gardener for she is smarter than thee um th- th- this gets back to me to this issue a little bit of of vulnerability don't don't try to hoodwink your consumer um, understand, especially you know, with the access that everybody has at their fingertips today to, to information. Uh, people know when you're being true to yourself and, and your values, and when you're trying to just hoodwink them. Um, respect the consumer and and appreciate their their ability to to um, give you credit when you when you take risk, even if you make a mistake, um, and point the finger at you if you're being um, disingenuous. So so that would be the other thing that I would think about. For, for me, I don't know. I'm not a list maker. You know, I, I'm not sure that I could give you three or five or ten um, that I would tell folks to um, to, to focus on. Um, I, I do, do think it's important for people to remember that the expectation that that our consumers have today is very different than 10 years ago or a generation ago or two generations ago, for sure, especially in, in a business like ours that's kind of scientific and, and performance-based. People, who they're buying products from really matters. And there are a lot of people that, they're, listen, we, while we're blessed and, and happy to have you know, 60% market share in a product like Scott's Turf Boulder Lawn Fertilizer, it's fertilizer. There's nothing specifically magic about it. What's magic about it is the trust that it's been in the marketplace for 110 years. Um, and, and you got to remember that. So, you know, I think being true to, to that and being true to your, your values and understanding that consumers want to do business with people who share those values is, is the other thing that I would mind. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I, I think that um, your commitment to the long term, your commitment to building trust, um, the golden rule, they're all so powerful. But is there any other story you'd like to share, Jim? You know, the, the one thing that I would, would, would say is that, especially in today's environment, social media to me is a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, it's got a lot of positive advantages. It's got a lot of disadvantages. And I think what we have found o- over time is that it's, it's really easy in today's environment for people to take shots at you. <laughs> I think they expect companies to behave in certain 
almost anonymous ways and very kind of corporate-like or legal-feeling kind of ways. And I think what we've been able to do here is defang some of that. We've had a lot of organizations that have been very, very, very critical of us in the past call me personally and say, listen, Jim, I, I can't say this publicly, but I appreciate everything that you guys are doing. You're doing the right things. But I'm not going to take shots at you publicly anymore. I'm not going to praise you publicly, but I'm not going to take shots at you publicly anymore because I, I trust that you guys are, are doing the right things. So I think you just have to be committed. You know, this this goes back to your question at the beginning. You know, it's a long-term, the long-term journey. And I've, I've taken um, a lot away from, from what we've done over the years here. And the handful of phone calls that I've gotten from people who said, I, I misread what you guys are all about. Uh, have been really gratifying. And I think they've been gratifying to people in leadership of the company. You know, we're not going to go out and tell folks where those conversations came from either, but they happened. Um, and if you look at the track record of who was shooting at us before and who's not, people could figure it out. Um, so I, I feel really good about about that. You talk so much about that, that about trust and that social purpose must be earned. Um, for, I'd love to end with, uh, again, a comment from you, um, Jim, which says, for today's organizations to be credible, they must be willing to open the dialogue with its leadership and even the board of directors that social purpose must be earned. I know that our listeners will be a bit surprised, Scott's miracle Grow with this long-term view, but if they're gardeners and they've used the product and they've put their hands in the earth to express themselves in their own individual way, they will totally understand that Jim King and Jim Hagendorn and your over 4,000 employees and your retail distribution system and ecosystem understands that gardening is magic and that you d- indeed have magic in your products and your corporate values. So we want to thank you for this very, very insightful discussion. And we will, for our listeners, um, to uh, gain additional information, you can go to purpose360podcast.com. We're going to make sure that we have links to many of the wonderful Scott's um, videos, their docuseries from Andy Mann. Uh, uh, I would suggest that, you know, Follow the links to the Everglades uh, Barley Prize, the George Barley Prize, because there's a lot happening there. And um, for all of you listening, we want to end with the question, what is your purpose? 